You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles as we continue our series in Acts. And our scripture reading this time is Acts 13, 16 to 41. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried all all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead... Never to decay is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And so it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. And therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. We had come to the end of Acts 16, and that means that our text this morning is to be found in Acts 17, the verses 1 to 15. 
where it describes the Apostle Paul and Silas in Thessalonica as well as in Berea. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house to search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were of noble or more noble character than the Thessalonians, For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, I think that there are a number of gardeners among us. Some of you are into vegetable gardens, large and small. Some of you are into flower gardens of various varieties. Together you love to make things grow, you love to get your hand into the soil, you like to tend your flowers, to hoe your vegetables, and of course all of that takes a lot of time. It also takes a lot of hard work. You have to keep the weeds at bay, and that's always a challenge, and you also have to stay on top of the pests. And you need to do a lot of watering, especially this summer in British Columbia when it's been so dry and hot for so long. So gardening takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of work, and at the end of all of that, sometimes, you know, the results are kind of mixed, aren't they? Some flowers do well, others don't do anything, it looks like. Some vegetables love to grow in this kind of climate and Other vegetables just seem to shrivel and shrink. Unfortunately, not everything grows well, and not all of the flowers or crops reach their full potential. It is a case sometimes when you garden of mixed results. And you might say and apply that same kind of analogy to the preaching of the gospel. 
Last time we looked at the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy as they came from Asia into Europe and as they went to Philippi. And now we notice the Apostle Paul and company going from Philippi south, first to Thessalonica and then to Berea. And then what do we expect? Well, maybe if we're really idealistic, we expect that the gospel is going to march through Europe, success after success, triumph after triumph, that nothing whatsoever will stand in its way and that soon it will conquer everywhere. But, of course, that's not exactly what happens. In some ways, just as gardening doesn't always produce what you hope and expect, so the gospel doesn't always go exactly in the way that we would like or that we predict or that we expect. And so this morning I'd like to preach to you on the following theme, a mixed result, preaching the gospel in Thessalonica and Berea, And we're going to look at the approach of the Apostle Paul especially. We'll also look at the reception that the gospel receives and ultimately the consequence. Oh, beloved, last time, as I said, we noted how the gospel first came to Philippi, and from Philippi it travels south, as we shall see in due time. And you may remember that in some ways Philippi is kind of unique. As a Roman colony, Philippi didn't have a synagogue. And the synagogue was usually Paul and Silas's point of contact whenever they came to a new place. Instead, when they go to Philippi, they go outside the city to a place of prayer, which was usually near the water, and that's where they found it. And by the way, if you go to Philippi in the ruins today, you'll still find that same place in the present time. In any case, from there they travel south and they go to Thessalonica. We all call it Thessalonica. If you go there, everybody will correct you and say, no, it's not Thessalonica. You Christians have it all wrong. It's Thessaloniki. Well, whatever. The point is that they come to this city, this rather large city in Macedonia, and In that particular city, they do find a synagogue. And that's where Paul, Silas, and Timothy go. Sabbath day after Sabbath day. In fact, it says specifically, three Sabbath days in a row, they go to the synagogue in Thessalonica. And what did they do there? Well, it says in verse 2, they reasoned with the people there from the Scriptures. Now, if you ask, what did they reason about? Well, you find the answer in verse 3, where it says that they spend their time explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And furthermore, they spend their time insisting that this Jesus that they are proclaiming to them is really the Christ. So what you have here are really three things. The first thing has to do with the very nature of the Messiah that the Jews are expecting. And you may know that in Paul's day, many of the Jews, of course, were expecting the Messiah, and they expected that when he comes, he would come as some kind of military general leading an army, that he would soon conquer and win triumphs after triumphs. In other words, that he would make a lot of other people suffer. 
He would defeat, destroy, and dispatch them. So you might say their whole vision of the coming Messiah was very optimistic, very upbeat, very positive. He's going to come like a conquering general distributing the spoils of battle. And everything's going to be just beautiful. And of course, especially, he's going to take care of the Romans. After all, they're the worst guys around. He's going to get rid of them. The Messiah will triumph over Rome, over all of our allies. Now, that's the prevalent thinking. But here come Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they preach the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, but of course, that gospel is not, in the first place, about a triumphant Messiah, but about a suffering Messiah. This Messiah doesn't sit on a horse, he sits on a donkey. He comes to suffer. Not because of anything he's done, but because of his people's sins. He doesn't issue orders, but he pays absolute lip service to the will of his heavenly Father. This Messiah doesn't march on in triumph, but he is marched straight to a cross. So you need to understand, if you're, you're sitting in this synagogue in Thessalonica and these guys come in and they start preaching, and they preach a totally different kind of Messiah. It requires a, a huge paradigm shift, as it were, in your mind. We always thought this, and, and now you're telling us we have to think that. And you know, that's only the first part. There's a second part to their message, and that has to do with this Messiah rising from the dead. Now, if you look in the Jewish literature, they really weren't into this kind of thing. They weren't thinking about their Messiah suffering, dying, and then rising. They were thinking about their Messiah triumphantly ruling from Jerusalem experiencing the spoils of his victory. They figured he would reign on forever and ever. Death. And dying wasn't even in the picture. It was far removed from their minds. They're only thinking about glory and about feasting and about life and freedom. So you see, not only do they have to get their minds, these poor people have to get their minds around a suffering Messiah, they also have to get their minds around a rising from the dead Messiah. And that's not easy. And you know, then there's a third thing. And maybe in some ways the third thing was the hardest thing to swallow of all, and that's the idea that that there... Great, glorious Messiah is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe if Paul, Silas, and Timothy had said he he comes from Jerusalem where he is born, he is of royal blood, he's from a very prominent family, he's got a huge reputation, that would have been one thing. But to say that this Jesus, their Messiah, is the son of Joseph, 
a carpenter. And that probably he may also have been a carpenter. That he grew up in the hick town of Nazareth. That he really doesn't have any claim to fame. That he's nothing but a self-styled rabbi. And that this person is now our Messiah. You see, it's not just a case of one paradigm shift, but it's three. You gotta get used to a suffering Messiah, you gotta get used to a rising from the dead Messiah, and you, you gotta get used to the fact that this Messiah has come in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And you know what the response to that kind of message is, humanly speaking? Are you out of your mind? Have you lost your marbles? Do you need a sanity test? But you'll notice Paul and company say, no. We're sane, we're sober, and we're scriptural. And that's why it says in our text that they... For three Sabbaths in a row, reasoned, explained, proved from the Jewish scripture that the Messiah they are presenting is the true Messiah. And of course, here in Acts 17, we don't hear all about the ins and outs of what they did and how they did it, but you do get a bit of a peek, and that's why we read together from Acts chapter 13. For there you you get a bit of a window into how Paul presented this Messiah in terms of linking him to prophecies and Psalms, Isaiah, Habakkuk, and other Bible books. He connects him to Abraham, Moses, David. He speaks about Exodus, kingship, and the law. He speaks about faith, forgiveness, and being justified. You might say the Apostle Paul uses the entirety of the Old Testament to prove that their picture of the Messiah is wrong and his picture of their Messiah is accurate and that Jesus of Nazareth fits the picture to a T. Now, what does that tell you? Surely that needs to speak to us about the power and the prominence of the gospel. The gospel stands here in our text front and center. As a matter of fact, it's the gospel that receives all the attention and all the focus. And you know, ultimately, it's the gospel. The simple gospel that wins hearts and minds. Now, we don't tend to think about things in those terms anymore today. If you uh, hear people planning evangelistic campaigns in cities that need to be won for the gospel, then often you hear about polls and surveys having to be taken, about marketing techniques, about this is what you avoid and that's what you don't speak about. 
and, and don't get into the hard stuff and forget about the theology and, and make everybody feel good and, and happy and comfortable and nice about themselves and about other people. You know, you gotta create this kind of environment, this kind of upbeat atmosphere. And, and that's gonna do it. And the result is that today in our, in our world you'll find that there are, are worship services where the gospel is hardly even read, where the scriptures are hardly even opened. Time and time again I hear stories of people visiting other churches and they say, well, we, we went there for a worship service or we went there for a wedding and and, and we hardly saw the Bible, we hardly heard the Bible, we, we hardly... Heard anything about the scriptures? See, beloved, ours is an age of gospel reduction, minimization, of detour. We've swallowed all this propaganda about Madison Avenue and advertising and about sophistication. And, 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 you know, the simple gospel just in the eyes of many people isn't good enough. But here in our text, the Apostle Paul says it is. This gospel still has power. This gospel changes hearts and lives. It may offend you. It may take you aback. It may defy all of your expectations. But that's what it does. And I dare say it is so then. And it still does so today. I've not been convinced that all of our modern approaches really in the end prove themselves to be effective. The most effective way is still to reason, explain, to prove, to open the Scriptures as the Word of God. Because you see, the Spirit works through that Word. And he works mightily and effectively. And you can see that as well in our text. Paul and Silas don't have any rabbits in hats. They don't have any gimmicks. They use the word of God like a sword. And what happens? Well, look at verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Kind of an interesting cross-section if you think of it. We have here Jews, Greeks, and women. So we have people who are probably raised as Jews in the synagogue. We have Greeks who have come into the synagogue. They're interested. Maybe they're in the process of being converted or become proselytes. And we also have a number of prominent women. That's just kind of interesting because, you know, throughout history and wherever the gospel is preached around the world, I dare say women are the first usually to believe and to embrace the good news. We've seen that in Brazil. We see that in China. For some reason, the gospel strikes a nerve with the ladies first. And it takes kind of longer for the thicker, denser skin and minds of men to get penetrated. I'm not sure what it says about men, but you can talk about that 
later on. In any case, so there are converts. And, and the converts, notice in our text, are not just in Thessalonica or Thessaloniki, they're also in Berea. There too, Paul goes into the synagogue and he finds fertile ground. And there too, the same combination, Jews, Greeks, and women come to faith. And, and in a way, it's even interesting because in verse 11, the Apostle Paul comes across as being almost somewhat racist. Imagine, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. You know, that's like saying, now, the B.C.ites were of more noble character than the Albertans. That's fighting language. And then it adds, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Obviously, and I think that's the gist of this, what the Apostle Paul wants to say is that the Bereans had in some ways a better reputation than the Thessalonians. Whether it was deserved or not, they were thought of in better terms. They were more appreciated. And that may have had something to do with their, their character. May even have something to do with their manners. Probably also had something to do with their business dealings. But be that as it may, the important thing is that, you know, the gospel here is received in a certain way. Look, for example, at how eagerly in Berea the gospel is embraced. And and look at how they used it to test everything the Apostle Paul said and that they came then to faith. And, and, you know, I would say that when when Paul came to Berea, he, he probably, and excuse the expression, but he probably thought he'd won the lottery. Now, I know that's not a very good expression, but you, you know the sense of that, right? I mean, he thought he'd struck... Hater. Because after all, you know, here are these people who are, are eager to hear the gospel and they search the gospel with him. And, and, and really, this must have been terribly exciting for the apostle. Because it's always terribly exciting, you know. And, and this is also one of the things that, that I might say makes teaching in China so attractive. It's the fact that when you go there, the word of God generates huge excitement. Sometimes in our community, we've heard it so often. We know all the stories and the Bible is read. And it's almost like you hear a collective yawn. You don't hear a collective yawn in China. You didn't hear it in Berea either. And not only was there great excitement about the gospel, but but notice that And I would say that every teacher worth his or her salt loves nothing better than to have students in their class who interact and who will challenge them to prove what they say is is true and accurate. That's also what you find, for example, in China. If You know, they they may not be into all the theology and all the history and all the church polity stuff, but if you're teaching there, you'd better stick very close to your Bible and you better know your Bible because if not, somebody is sure to put you on the spot. Just because you're some guy who comes from the West doesn't mean you have all the wisdom and all the, the knowledge. 
and we're going to simply bow down before you and accept everything you say and not question you at all. Hardly. You see, there's excitement in the air. And Paul and Silas and Timothy are in Berea. Excitement about the Word of God, about the gospel of Jesus Christ, suffering, dying, rising, and even coming from the hick town of Nazareth. Well, that's the positive, but of course we have to say, as in every garden there are beautiful flowers and lovely vegetables, there are also weeds and there are challenges. And, and of course here too there is a negative, and it comes in the form of opposition and agitation and distortion. Some Jews, it says, heard about Paul in Thessalonica and they decided to oppose him and And you know, these Jews are very predictable because what they always do, the first thing is they go out and they hire some shady characters who lie and distort. And then they get these shady characters to form a mob. And after the mob has been formed, they try to find some believers to target. And Thessalonica, they of course target Jason and his family. And then the final straw in the mix is that they accuse them all of treason. Those are the tactics in Thessalonica. Those are also the tactics in Berea. And so what does all of that teach us today? I think it surely reminds us that the advance of the gospel is never without opposition or without setback. If you study the history of the Christian church, you'll see that repeatedly. Whether you look different nations of the world, you'll see it every time again. So often the gospel is one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back. That's so often what happens. Whenever the gospel is preached, it unleashes a certain hatred. And of course, we know ultimately where that hatred comes from. It it doesn't even come from those misguided Jews in Thessalonica and Berea. It comes ultimately from the devil. The great antithesis is at work here. It's always at work. There's always Satan. So, beloved, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be dismayed with what we read here about Paul and company and Thessalonica and Berea. And we shouldn't be dismayed either when we read about setbacks elsewhere in the world, whether it be in Indonesia or whether it be in Brazil or in China. The gospel cuts like a two-edged sword. It either works acceptance or creates resistance. And indeed, if the gospel doesn't do that, then you need to ask yourself, is this really and truly the gospel of Jesus Christ? There's no such thing in terms of the scriptures as an inoffensive gospel. If the gospel makes your pew comfortable Sunday after Sunday, if the gospel makes you self-satisfied and smug, there's something wrong. Because that's not the real gospel. 
of Jesus Christ. Notice also in this connection that those who resist the gospel often try to turn the state against the church. And how do you turn the state against the church by insinuating that the church has gone political and poses a political threat? Now, of course, it's true that the gospel has relevance for politics and political affairs and for all of life. The gospel is all about loyalty to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the gospel is given not just to change your heart, but to transform and renew the entire world in creation. But at bottom, the gospel isn't a political platform. Nor is Jesus Christ a candidate for political office. The apostles don't run around Asia and Europe saying, vote for Jesus, don't vote for Caesar. Church and state are distinct. And hence the charges of disloyalty and treason are a lie. Christians do not oppose the emperor as such. They pray for the emperor. Christians don't oppose the Communist Party of China. They pray for the Communist Party of China. They pray that all of these people will be transformed. Christians do not ignore the law of the land. They obey them, even if they don't like them. Christians don't promote revolution. We pray for reformation. And yet, beloved, you might say that as our text comes to an end, it looks as if the enemies of the gospel have the last word. Timothy and Silas stay behind for a while. Paul goes on to to Athens, which is a tougher nut to crack, as we hope to see next time. And you wonder, well, was all of this really worthwhile? Had Paul and Silas and Timothy perhaps made a mistake by first going to Thessalonica, then going to Berea, perhaps they should have gone straight to Athens. Because by the end of our text, it looks as if the gospel is in a state of flight. Well, beloved, don't be fooled. Don't be mistaken. For what do you read in our text is not the only thing that you read in the scriptures about what happens elsewhere, for example, in Thessalonica. If you look at Paul's letters, which he later on writes to that fledgling group of believers in Thessalonica, what do you hear? He writes in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 8, You became imitators in us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. You see what happens? That's not the impression you get from our text, right? Our text 
would have you believe it was a failure. But ultimately it wasn't a failure. Because the Spirit kept on working. And the light began to shine. And it shined far and wide in Europe. Now that's Thessalonica. There's also Berea. Some scholars think that Berea kind of fizzled out. You don't hear about any letters of Paul or Peter written to the church in Berea. You don't really hear of any other mention of them, so you think they're goners. But, you know, again, there isn't any proof or support for that whole idea. I would say to you this morning that that probably that fledgling group of believers in Berea continue to exist and continue to flourish and, and... They continue to do what what churches of Jesus Christ do all over the world, and that is to continue to exist quietly and to let their light shine in their local area without necessarily creating all kinds of headlines and publicity for themselves. Because, you see, that's really what happens in most churches of Jesus Christ. Simple faithfulness to the gospel the simple desire to take the gospel, to embrace it, to apply it, to live out of it, and to let its repercussions become obvious. And I think that's what happened in Berea. Still today, there's a Christian community in Berea. And I think that church continued to exist and even to thrive. Together with Thessalonica, the gospel makes inroads into Europe. So, beloved, it is, humanly speaking, a mixed bag. But that's just humanly speaking. If you look at the work of God and the work of the Spirit, then you see here how God begins to transform a continent. And he's still transforming continents today. Never underestimate the power of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ who suffered, who rose again, and who came from heaven via Nazareth. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.